and welcome to The Bunker Start Your Week, your need to know on news and politics. I'm Ros Taylor and joining me is Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Hi, Ros. Good morning. And we're talking about migration again. The latest flashpoint is Abdul Azedi, the man who badly injured a woman and her daughters last week by throwing an alkali substance at them. He's still on the run and there's a £20,000 reward for information leading to his capture. There's been a lot of disquiet over the fact that Azedi has a sex offence conviction, but that he was nonetheless granted asylum. And now church leaders are under attack. Tell us why, Alex. Because Azedi apparently claimed he had converted to Christianity, and this was one of the factors his asylum application appeal may have been successful on. This has been further fueled by a recent uh, report that 40 asylum seekers on the BB Stockholm have also converted to Christianity. And it has began this conversation about whether religion is a way in which asylum applicants can game the system effectively. My sense, for what it's worth, is that this stuff is nothing but cover, of course. The government through parliament makes the rules that departments and tribunals follow, If you want to look for reasons for the dysfunction, I mean, look at the fact that there have been six changes of Home Secretary and eight changes of Immigration Minister since 2016. Look at the fact that people have used their their Home Office as their personal campaign headquarters for the leadership ambition. Look at the constant changes of policy. I think a department like that will make terrible decisions. You can almost guarantee that. And meanwhile, James Cleverley is annoyed with the Church of England for a slightly different reason. Tell us about that. Yes, well, Nigel Farage is annoyed with the Church of England, so of course the government is annoyed with the Church of England. An internal Church of England document has basically emerged about helping asylum seekers, which should be no shock to anyone frankly, since it's it's kind of the church's job. I mean, the original meaning of asylum is when people used to go to a church and ask for sanctuary. And yet, apparently, it's been a shock to, to everyone. I particularly like the quote from Tory MP Henry Smith, accusing the institution of embarking on a naive, self-destructive path to national irrelevance. I mean, he could be describing the Tory party in that. So, yeah, that's, that's what's going on. Apparently, the church, the church is minded to help the dispossessed, which is uh, just amazing news, shocking news. Certainly dragging us into the culture wars after the National Trust as well seems risky. Well, yes, and the fact that the Rwanda bill is back in the Lords next week it's at committee stage, and the bishops have been leading the charge against the Rwanda bill, is certainly not coincidental, right? It seems to me that is what the attack on the church is about. It's engineered to embarrass them just before the Rwanda bill goes into committee stage in the hope that they will hold back a little bit in their attacks on that bill. And it might actually work. I mean, there's even been some talk that the the bill itself might be amended. Even at this late stage, there's some parliamentary mechanism for amending the bill to include a rider that anyone who has a criminal conviction should also come under the provisions and have no right to apply for asylum, which seems to me 
just hugely problematic, as as very often is the case of when you make legislation based on one case. To do that would be just incredibly counterproductive because, of course, often the sort of persecution that people complain about when they ask for asylum, so political persecution or being persecuted for being homosexual, for instance, to give you just two examples, they often come with criminal convictions from the place where they're coming from, right? You will often get have a criminal conviction for being gay in one of the countries where we get asylum seekers from, seeking asylum for being homosexual. You will often get convicted for your political beliefs or for speaking out when you come from the countries from which we get political asylum seekers. And and so to me to say, if you have any kind of criminal conviction back in your country of residence, you simply can't apply for asylum is utterly ludicrous. Speaking of discrimination, Labour is announcing a new policy on pay equality for ethnic minority workers. Basically, public services will have to show that they are paying people the same rate for the same job. And no one could really object to that, but as Birmingham Council has discovered, it can be very expensive to settle pay discrimination claims. On Tuesday, a new Tory faction is launching itself. I have mentioned this faction before. I remember on uh, Start Your Week, Alex, and uh, we both laughed, but uh, <laughs> we're not laughing now. Um, I purpose- am laughing. <laughs> I'm laughing even harder now. <laughs> it's the Popcons. Um, their purpose doesn't seem likely to trouble brain cells much, but um, tell us who's involved and what they think they want. Yeah, so the Popcons are the latest sort of initiative Um, launched by Liz Truss. It's basically a vehicle for right-wing Tory MPs, similar to, I guess, the the new Conservatives who launched last year. I mean, to be honest, I don't know how it is different from several of the five families that are already there and exactly which MPs it's hoping to cannibalise from which of those families. But it seems to me to have a lot of overlap. They're basically lobbying for more hardline policies like uh, on immigration or tax cuts. So basically maximum fiscal conservatism, maximum social conservatism seems to be the, the platform. And Mark Littlewood, who was the architect of trussonomics, apparently, that bit of brilliance, and who was unsuccessfully nominated for a peerage, reportedly, um, will be director of the movement. He is on his way out from the the Institute of Economic Affairs. I mean, Farage will be in attendance, and that will has annoyed a lot of Tory MPs. It does seem to be a, a movement seeking to bridge the gap between basically former UKIP, current reform people and right-wing conservative people. Yeah, I believe Nigel Farage has been talking again about himself and the Tory party and saying that he he might well join again, but not until after the general election. Andrew Bridgen, the notorious anti-vaxxer, is back in Parliament this week. What what is he doing? So he's uh, got a a debate in Westminster Hall. Um, He's invited controversially German MEP Christine Anderson. She's an MEP for Alternative für Deutschland, 
the far-right uh, party, uh, who is quite well known for, his, for its um, Holocaust denialism-adjacent statements. Various other cranks are in attendance, uh, an American doctor whose license was suspended after COVID-19 misinformation, various conspiracy theorists. I mean, the agenda of the thing, and I quote, is to discuss 15-minute cities, World Health Organization power grab, COVID-19 pandemic response, farmers' protests, and vaccine harms. <laughs> all aboard, all aboard. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a meeting of cranks. I guess the reason we should care is that someone who has been thrown out of the Tory party, even for being too crankish, even for the Tory party, <laughs> something you would think quite difficult at the moment, especially with popcorns launching, has managed to basically stay in Parliament and degrade the, his office, I guess, by you know inviting all those people into Parliament. And it just re-emphasizes, I think, that we need to look at recall rules. It seems to me impossible that an MP who has been elected on one basis and has then veered widely off, you know, or actually is simply has simply gone AWOL, because this is something we're discussing when Doris was refusing to resign for months. It just seems impossible that there is no mechanism for constituents to say, enough, this person does not represent us. In the Middle East, the RAF and the US Air Force struck Houthi targets again. This is clearly not just a one-off operation. Is it having any effect on the Houthis' ability to target ships? You know, I don't know. I mean, evidently it's not because the attacks are still going on. There were more strikes overnight. Houthi media is saying they're not going to, uh, to achieve anything except escalate the conflict. You also have Israel hitting Hezbollah targets in Lebanon overnight. So it just seems that there is this slow burn contagion going on. Because after the war in Israel broke out last year, there was a lot of worry about it sparking a mm. wider war. And now we've had the US striking various targets in the Middle East in response to three of their soldiers being killed in Jordan. Are we now seeing a sort of slow march to all-out war? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, the, the US insists that the, the purpose of those strikes is to degrade and disrupt I mean, they seem to be doing neither. That much is evident simply from the facts of the case. Both the Houthi attacks, the attacks in Lebanon, the attacks in Iraq, the attacks in Syria, they don't seem to be deterring anyone. They may be degrading the infrastructure, but again, not in a way that is noticeable. It seems to me that what we're seeing is a sort of tit-for-tat, which may not necessarily be the wrong thing and may not necessarily lead to further contagion because as always with those things not doing nothing not doing something is also an active choice right 
So being hit, you know, your ships being hit as they, they try to cross and doing nothing, that is also an active choice. And it could be that allowing Iranian proxies to operate effectively with impunity in the region also risks escalation. So doing nothing about it also risks escalation. So I guess the West is trying to strike this balance between not allowing Iranian proxies to act with impunity, but also not uh, striking in a way that escalates the situation. And it is a really, really difficult line to walk. And we know from past wars that they usually explode because of some mistake or miscalculation. The more fronts you have, the more strikes you mount, the more there is the chance of a mistake or or miscalculation. So certainly the situation is an absolute powder keg. The state of Britain's armed forces seems to be more and more of a talking point. Every day, another general or defence analyst pops up and says, we have massive weaknesses. What are our weaknesses? Low numbers, low refreshment rate, low ammunition, low equipment, basically low budgets. Because the, the problem has been that during a period of austerity, during a period of Brexit, during a period of the pandemic, during a period of, of you know high inflation, the focus has been quite naturally, I think, away from the Defence Department, right? So if you are going to squeeze budgets anywhere, defence is one of the places where you might. The problem with that, as many of the experts are pointing out at the moment, is that that kind of defence capability takes a long time to build up. And once you degrade it, it actually costs a lot of money to build back up and it takes time to build back up, which means that you have a period when you're effectively poorly defended, which invites war, as it were. So you have to always be well defended in order to avoid war. That's the doctrine in any case. I am always dubious as to whether these sorts of reports are strategic or opportunistic. You know, every department wants more money always, and there is a huge sector sitting behind the defense industry, a huge, um, uh, you know, commercial sector that will always want more money to be spent. And I sometimes wonder whether during periods of increased skirmishes everywhere in the world of war, of insecurity, there is an opportunistic chance to say, give us some more money. Uh, But, you know, having said that, there is no doubt that austerity has hit particularly hard defense budgets, you know, and you look around and you think, is this the time to be less well defended, let's say. And the Northern Ireland Assembly, it will finally get to work again this week. For the first time, the First Minister is from Sinn Féin. After so long without sitting, what are the priorities? Yes, I mean, this is such good news and and, and such uh, credit 
to Sunak's government, I think, because it has been a, a genuinely thorny issue, and they seem to have managed to, you know, bring all parties to a position where there is a tiny, narrow path forward. Huge credit to Chris Heaton, Harris, and also the government in Westminster and Dublin, and all the parties involved in Northern Ireland. I think their their priority must be the civil service, because the civil service is effectively the staff via which any government, including you know a national government like uh, Stormont, acts. And there was a massive walkout last week. There have been strikes because, of course, one of the effects of uh, there not being a functional devolved government was that civil servants could not be awarded any kind of pay rise. And during a time of inflation being anything up to 20% on food, that must have been just absolutely awful. So I guess they start with the civil service and then they begin to administer all the bits of help that have been available on energy, on, you know, on, on every area you can look at. There's been subsidies that have simply not been administered in Northern Ireland because there was no, no devolved administration to do it. So I guess they begin with that. I mean, it's an interesting thing that in many ways I think the possibility of Irish reunification will come down to Sinn Féin's competence in government, especially if, as polls show, they become the government in the Republic of Ireland as well from next year. If you have Sinn Féin in charge, both both north and south of the border, if those populations continue to gripe at the way Westminster is running things, and in contrast, Sinn Féin seems to be running things much better, it seems to me that that is the most practical threat to unionism there has been in the history of unionism. And that perhaps is why the SNP finally has, is not in the position it once was in Scotland. They just weren't quite as good at running things in the Nationalist Party as people hoped they would be. Yeah, I think absolutely, because yes, there are, you know, there is a large slice of the population always that is ideologically attached to unionism or nationalism, but there is a slice in the middle that is floating, and that is attracted by what will make my life better. And if you can see your life getting better under some sort of independence or reunification in the case of Ireland, then that does sway a lot of those undecided votes in the middle. It's the Pakistani general election on Thursday. The founder of one of the parties, Imran Khan, is in jail. What's going on? Oh, God. Who knows? I, I mean, I was trying to read up on this earlier. Apparently, his party's mounting a sort of comeback. They're doing loads of AI-generated robocalls and working very hard on social media, including TikTok, while the opposite party is doing quite well in more traditional ways and is still predicted to win. So, I mean, presumably he could win from jail. We could see that scenario, but it is unlikely based on current polling. One bit of, I think, good news, the first woman ever is contesting an election in Pakistan. Rahana Magsi, 
in Balochistan. It's a sort of very large but very sparsely populated province of Pakistan. And she's she's running for local government. And, you know, she's facing loads of threats. She's It's breaking tradition, although interestingly, not the rules. But she says she's not giving up and she continues to, to go for it, which I think is incredibly courageous and hopeful. And while we're on the subject of women, it was the Grammys last night. And it seems to have been absolutely dominated by female artists. And not just Taylor Swift, who announced a new album that's coming out in April, but also other artists like Miley Cyrus. And Annie Lennox, of course, sang a beautiful tribute to Sinead O'Connor. Johnny Mitchell performed for the first time. It was wonderful to see, I think. And it was wonderful to see, actually, so many women across such a spread of ages. Although, I have to point out, it was a pretty white ceremony. So there wasn't necessarily the spread across races that one might like to see. But, you know, considering how male-dominated this sort of award ceremonies have been recently, it was brilliant to see so many women both performing and being honoured and just, I mean, the sass quotient was incredibly (laughs) high last night. I think that's fair to say. And on that uplifting note, um, thanks so much, Alex. My pleasure. And you can support us to keep making bunkers for just £3 a month. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes wherever you get your podcasts Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Ros Taylor with Alexandre the producer was Liam Tate and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production.